Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. And uh, I'm excited about today's guest. I'm excited about all the guests. I love them all because they all have such fascinating stories. And this one is no different. Our guest today is Ace Ornstein, who is the author of the book Embarrassed to Ask, My Life with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and the Cognitive-Based Therapy That Helped. Uh, This was released uh, in March of last year. Uh, actually, it was released a few days before my birthday, which is which is I'm just realizing that. Uh, but it's an amazing book. He tells an amazing story of what happened to him in sixth grade that triggered his uh, obsessive compulsion. We talk about sex education and what it what it is and what it should be. And it's very fascinating as to what he was taught. He shares a story about what he was taught in sex, sixth grade sex ed that I was completely shocked by. Uh, I, ca- I can't believe it. And we also talk about what he did later on to combat his obsessive compulsive disorder and how he used cognitive behavioral therapy. And I, he uses exposure therapy, which is a therapy um, I, I knew little about, uh, I was aware of, but I, I didn't realize exposure therapy went to the lengths that it did uh, in, in his story, it's it's uh, it's fascinating, people. So so tune in for that. And if you haven't been to ThriveWithLeo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly, go check that out now, ThriveWithLeo.com. I've helped so many people deal with trauma and transition and tragedy. If, if you're struggling with feeling connected or like you belong, Go to thrivewithleo.com, and we can get to tomorrow together. Thank you all for leaving five-star ratings on iTunes and for leaving comments and for sharing it with your friends. And with that said, let's get into the episode. Today's guest is Ace Ornstein. Uh, I'm excited... Am I saying your last name correctly? Yes, you're saying it right. I'm actually uh, very surprised. Not a lot of people get it right. You got it. Well, it, awesome. it, it's a it's Jewish, correct? It's a Jewish yes. last name. Yeah. Yes, have, it is. I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of Jewish people. My girlfriend is a Russian Jew, and then oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. I said Russian Jew like that. Like, <laughs> well, like you she, know, listen. Uh, you got it. You got it. You uh, you got the Jew going on around you, so you kind of get what's going on. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, where do you live at, Ace? Uh, I live in New Jersey. Uh, I live in uh, Highlands, New Jersey. It's about like it's about like forty five minutes from the city. About. A, a big Jewish community over there. Uh, you know what? You're probably asking the wrong guy because even <laughs> though I am Jewish, like I'm kind of like cult. I'm very. I'm you know. Listen, I pray, but in terms of. Um, being, you know, doing the traditional stuff, that's kind of not what, what I'm about. Not that I'm against it. It's just, I mean, I guess there are people, but I, I don't think so. But but maybe I'm just probably not the best person to, to ask. I'm not involved. You know what I mean? I, not, not as involved as I probably should be. You know I, I, mean? I feel you. I feel you. So you're not, you're not having any satyrs is what you're telling me. No, no. But it's not that I'm against it. You know, it's just something that I guess, you know, it doesn't fit with my lifestyle. You know what I mean? I kind of worship in my own way, as weird as that might sound, you know? I think no, everyone I, has their I, own I, way. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's what we're all doing, right? Like, we're all, mm-hmm. no matter if you say I'm Catholic or Methodist or Muslim, like, when we get down to the details of getting the nook, nooks, get, getting to the nooks and crannies of it all, 
uh, we all have our own interpretation of of what that means and uh, and and how to practice that. So so you're not yeah. alone, brother. You're not alone. Um, um, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to have you on, man. You have you wrote a book called "Embarrassed to Ask: My Life with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and the Cognitive Based Therapy That Helped." And yes, I'm excited to have you on for two reasons. One is because, uh, you know, people who have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, end their life at 10 times the rate of the general population. And also uh, cognitive based therapy has been shown to to be uh, extremely effective in reducing uh, suicidality. So uh, you're combining two things that I, the, the listeners are going to find very, very uh, helpful, and uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to to hear your story. So, so take us to the beginning. Like, I would imagine the 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 level of OCD uh, changed and progressed over time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, to begin, you know, you you talk about that ten times more likely with OCD. It's something that I'm very aware of, um, just because you know I'm always talking to people about the disorder, and it is very, you know, a lot of people don't really understand um, with OCD that oh, you know, a lot of people have like a minor form of it, like oh, I just wash my hands a little bit more, but that's kind of like a misconception. So, um, and you know, a lot of people just think, oh, it's OCD. It's not a big deal. And of course it's not, you know, this biggest deal in the world, but it is something that's very serious and has a a very big impact on people, uh, including myself, uh, obviously. And, you know, to take it to the beginning, um, you know, the, the rituals of it, um, started so simple, you know, it was just like, I wouldn't want to have, like, you know, when you talk to someone and like some saliva gets on you just naturally, just by talking with someone, they might, uh, asphyxiate their peas in a certain way <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know <laughs> what I mean? So with that, um, it just, that was a slight thing where, okay, after I would have like a conversation with someone, I would not, um, you know, I, I wouldn't let like saliva, I guess I wouldn't swallow saliva when I talk to someone. It's kind of a weird thing. I would actually spit in my shirt or spit a lot. Um, I would also, of course, wash my hands um, increasingly. I would have Purell on me, like, you know, but like I did my best to con- to, to conceal it. You know, people didn't really um, suspect that anything was wrong, even at, you know, this minor stage with this first stage of OCD. And you know, the reason why I call the book Embarrassed to Ask is that I, I really was embarrassed to ask or tell anyone of why I was going through what I was going through. And um, because I didn't tell anyone and because I didn't talk to anyone about this, the thoughts manifested to a simple, well, I'll, maybe I'll spit more than usual, maybe I'll wash my hands more than usual, to way more extreme things. So at the beginning, it was you know, and I think this goes for a lot of people with OCD, and most people stay at this stage with OCD. Is that it's it's inconvenient, but it's manageable. And um, unfortunately for me, but uh, it it progressed a lot more. And um, but in the beginning, it started by uh, those were the beginning rituals, and it started, of course, uh, from. Well, I don't know if you want to know the 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 short version of how it started, but. Um, I want to know all the things, all the things, oh, okay. man. Leave, leave so, no stone unturned. Let's hear the full so, story. Um, all right. So 
I was in middle school, uh, sixth grade. Um, you know, I kind of, it was a new school. It was a new environment for me. Not that that really made a difference. I'm just setting the scene. And, uh, one day we had this assembly, um, in class, these, um, sex ed workers came to, uh, came in, came into the classroom and decided to give, um, a lecture, you know, about being responsible sexually. We're all coming about that age where we learn about it and things like that. Um, and you know, they kind of just, to be honest with you, told a bunch of lies and they kind of did a bunch of these scare tactics to try and scare us from even thinking about sex or, or, or having sex or whatever, you know, for, so for an example, one thing that I'll never forget, I'll never forget. And, um, they would say, one thing they said was if someone is crying and they have AIDS, you know, don't talk to them, don't touch them, don't hug them, don't give them a napkin or something like that, because you could get it through their tears, which is not true. It's actually not true. You, you can't get AIDS from, uh, someone's tears, but that's what they said. I'll never forget that. It just made me kind of afraid of people um, with these diseases. And then I, I was so paranoid that I, I was confused on how someone gets AIDS or, or how someone gets herpes and or how someone gets all these kinds of diseases and what they turn into. So, you know, it was kind of a brief, I, I don't know how long it was, but it was a brief kind of uh, session with a bunch of lies thrown out. Um, that I learned later were lies. I thought they were real at the time. And, um, you know, I just, they kind of just said at the end, so does anyone have any questions? You could write something down or you could raise your hand or something. And, you know, I didn't want to be that guy. I had so many questions and maybe some of my classmates had questions. I don't know, but I had so many questions about, you know, how these STDs are, are transmitted and what the effects of these STDs actually are, what they turn into um, and things like that. I was kind of misled by, um, by factoids and I was so confused. I didn't want to ask any questions it's about sex. I was embarrassed. Um, I didn't want to hold up the class. So they left. And I just kind of filled in the blanks going home that day. Um, you know, it was, again, wash my hands more. Uh, maybe I could get it from saliva. I don't know. I just assumed you could get it from saliva, any kind of diseases. So I kind of turned into this um, very clean kind of person, not really clean as in around me, just kind of clean as my body, you know, and making sure that I didn't have any germs or any infections or any something like that. Specifically, though, it was it was aimed toward STDs. Um, and I was just ill-informed and, you know, it started out like that simple rituals, like I said in the beginning, but then it turned, um, you know, I started, you know, taking the showers that I took, you know, my body. So let's say I would clean my arm. My body would say, you know what? You didn't clean it good enough. It's not clean good enough. You have to do it again. And if I didn't do it again, like it wasn't like I'm being mind controlled. If I just didn't do it again, I would feel this. I would, I would almost collapse in fear. I would have these panic attacks and anxiety and things like that. And that was kind of the OCD. It was kind of like I describe it as like its own being inside me. Um, saying, you know, this isn't clean enough or what if that or what if that. So, you know, there was three hour showers and then this three hour showers eventually turned into, um, you know, I wouldn't even use the toilet anymore because um, I know it's going to kind of be a little bit graphic. But, you know, when you use the toilet and sometimes when you're taking uh, maybe a number two and the, the toilet water splashes on you, um, you know, oh, oh, that yeah. kind of. Yeah. 
you know, that kind of like all the germs in the toilet and, you know, you know, there could be blood in someone's stool and then that could get on me and then I could get AIDS or I could get HIV or I could get syphilis or something like that. And so I eventually would defecate in bags. Um, I would not use the toilet at all. I would take, you know, the showers got increasingly long. Um, and you know, I would, my hands would bleed daily because they were so dry from all the soap, from all the Purell. Um, and you know, I would, I would wipe down, I wouldn't sleep in my bed anymore. I would sleep on the floor cause I was afraid of the sheets and what if they had crabs in it, et cetera, et cetera. So th- that's kind of how my symptoms evolved over many years. It was a three-year period, but it went from just, oh, I'm going to wash my hands a little bit more than usual. I'm going to spit a little bit more than usual to now I'm sleeping on the floor. I'm not using the toilet anymore. I'm defecating in bags. I'm taking showers that are way too long, hours long showers. And it became a point where it was unlivable. Um, You know, like I didn't say anything you know my father i had to move in with my father i was living with my mother at the time and she couldn't really handle she didn't understand what was going on so um i i she basically kicked me out i had to live with my father and he kind of gathered that something was obviously wrong and fortunately he looked up symptoms he found out this could be ocd and I eventually uh, was enrolled in increased therapy and stuff like that, and I was formally kind of diagnosed, like, this is how it is. And I was put into um, a mental facility, uh, Rogers Behavioral Health, which was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, That's where I was exposed to CBT. Um, And, you know, we did a bunch of things, a a lot of things that I go over in the book, like, um, that might might seem unusual, but basically, when I got to Rogers, when I got there years later, um, you know, they kind of re-educated me um, with what STDs actually are and what are the effects of them and how do you get them. And, you know, we would do CBT. I'm sure you're familiar with the therapy of, you know, you do exposures. You actually get yourself anxious. So you learn to live with the anxiety because – like I said before, when if I didn't wash myself a certain time or if I didn't do a certain ritual, I didn't have to do it. But it was the sense of if I didn't, I'd be so panicked. I'd be so sad and 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 filled with misery and fear. So I couldn't live with the anxiety if I didn't do these rituals. And then doing the exposures, um, I learned to manage and live with my anxiety. And um, I was reeducated what what sex, what sexual diseases actually are. And, um, and in a combination of doing those rituals and overcoming, um, overcoming all my rituals with these exposures and learning, um, I was, you know, God bless in two months, uh, this, I had OCD for three years. I had this major thing that I was going through. All those symptoms I told you progressed in a three year span. And in a matter of two months, I was out of the hospital and God bless, I haven't relapsed, but it's because I worked very hard with my doctors. I listened to them. I cooperated with them. I think a part of me knew that I was sick of this disorder. I did not want this disorder to control me anymore, but I just didn't know how to live with myself uh, if I stopped doing these rituals. And I didn't know all of the information that I needed to know. So yeah, I guess that's you know my story in short. And 
Um, in terms of what we did with in the hospital, I'll just give you some quick examples of the of the exposures that we did. You know, I was afraid of the toilet. I wouldn't even go near the toilet. Toward the end of the um, exposures, I was eating food. I was eating goldfish off toilet seats. Like I was, uh, it, it's almost strange to to say. Um, you know, I was wearing my parents' clothes um, and walking around. Um, I was looking at pictures of, you know, terrible cases of herpes. Like, of course, herpes isn't the end of the world, but, you know, it's not very flattering to look at. Um, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of things. I had a, a nurse, um, not a nurse, but one of the staff members drink a cup of water and then say to me, I have herpes, and then I would drink the same cup of water. Um, so I kind of exposed myself to these things that I was afraid of in a way. And I guess that was part of the key of getting over it. So I, I know I rambled, but that's kind of a summary. Um, I kind of jumbled a little bit of, of what my story is and, and, and where I am today. So, um, yeah. Wow. Super fascinating. Sorry. I, I no, know no. it wasn't the most structured, but that's kind of just, you know, some of the stuff that I've been through and stuff like that. I'm glad you shared all those things with us. There's so much I want to unpack. I want to I want to go backwards uh, a lot of bit, sure. not just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, um, I know. yeah, I know. And going back to sex ed, I mean, sure. you, you know, you're talking about sixth grade sex ed and all the scare tactics. Sex ed in sixth grade was terrifying. Like they showed you all yeah. the worst things, all the STDs, the pregnancies, the, you know, uh, the single parents. And then, you know, they would give you and not and they usually didn't do this in middle school, but in high school, they'd give you the baby to carry around and mm, but yeah. with no type of training, no type of uh, uh, check in or support. No, nothing. They just gave you a baby. And in real life, you don't just get a baby. There's like nine yeah. months of preparation leading mm -hmm. up to you getting the baby. So if they really wanted to make it real, they they would prep you for nine months and then yeah. let you have the baby. Um, so it was just all these things that made you terrified. And then, uh, and what that does is it prevents people from asking questions. And, and now you have so many people who are walking around with shame and guilt around sex and not talking to someone, which then we know, uh, just perpetuates uh, the stigma around uh, being a single parent, being pregnant, being you know having an STD, like all these different things, or or and not or not being uh, you know not having an orgasm. Like there's just there's so many pressures that that young people feel that they shouldn't, um, and not that they shouldn't, but but due to the lack of education and a poor education uh that's received you know uh, i go ahead i certainly agree um you know uh, education specifically sex ed uh in the country um and me being hey I, I grew up in new york that's a very well-funded education system um but it's not the, the problem is, is that sex ed is one of those things that i just think systems are having a hard time teaching and I feel like if I fell through the cracks like I did in New York, then I can't imagine, you know, everywhere else where there's a lot of people who do fall through the cracks with these. Um, like you said, you know, they kind of just 
make people feel ashamed and um, and people feel scared and they don't want to talk about these kind of things. And it's a very ineffective and dangerous uh, way that we're teaching you know, kids and young adults about sex and sex ed and the responsibilities that come with that. In my opinion, you know, I'm not really a politician, but, you know, but in my opinion, you know, we need to, we need to, instead of going straight to the scare tactics and the pictures of the graphic images and stuff like that to try and deter kids from having sex, I mean, there really should be a different approach of, look, sex is going to happen. This is what you need to know about the risks. And, you know, this is the way to protect yourself. And this is the result, like, you know, like, don't, don't lie to anyone, you know, don't make anyone feel ashamed. I I really do feel like that, you know, with sex ed, you you need to give people all the information. Because when I was educated um, at Rogers Behavioral Health about what really all these diseases are and do and how you get them, I understood, look, sex ed is important and kids need to know that because kids are sexually active. But I just think the approach is all wrong and it's very damaging and it could lead to people um, feeling anxious and, and having unanswered questions and anxiety about anything, whether it's their sexuality, um, motherhood or fatherhood, or again, diseases. So Absolutely. I, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know what it's like, you know, I think some of the things that kids definitely need to learn. One is that porn is not the real thing. Uh, that's super important to learn. And, you know, because because that's where they're getting their other they're getting their information from uh, for first from from class, which is uh, a limited uh, scope of things. And then from the, the, the one kid who's way too mature. Right. Mm-hmm. There's always a kid yes. who's like either they yes. got held back or they just know too much yep. for whatever yep. reason. And yep. and then the third place is is porn and the internet. And, yeah. and so yep. all three of these sources are completely unreliable or limited in, in Absolutely. And, and that's not fair to the kids. I mean what what should be should be taught in sex ed in addition to uh is what consent should look like. I agree um, completely. Right. And, Absolutely. and that like getting an STD test is okay. Is there shouldn't be any shame around yeah. making sure that you're healthy. Absolutely. Um, masturbation shouldn't be, is not embarrassing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, and, and also talking about sexuality, like some people aren't straight and talking about the different, you know, what, what gender is, what sexuality is. And, and also most importantly that, sex isn't just about penetration that's just an Mm -hmm. umbrella term like they're like sex can entail so many different aspects and it's not just about intercourse and i think that it's a shame that uh sex has only has been equated with intercourse as a as opposed to intercourse being a part of what sex can be because not everybody uh for you know for different reasons uh can can uh, have penetration, you know, or penetrate. Uh, absolutely. And I just think, you know, we talk about these things that, that should be happening. And it's really unfortunate that, and look, I haven't been in, you know, grade school in a long time now. Um, but, you know, I don't think that, that that conversation, those conversations are happening, to be honest with you. And, um, 
you know, I think sex ed is just one of those things where even kids, parents, and teachers just kind of go like, uh, I don't want to talk about it because it's a very hard subject. But that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't make it uh, justifiable uh, leaving basically uh, our children and us in the dark um, when it comes to learning about sex and sexuality and everything else. Like you said, those three sources about the limited scope, the kid who kind of knows everything or knows a lot or whatever. And then, you know, porn, you know, that's kind of like where kids are left to the wind to learn about sex. And, and to be honest with you, if we had what you're talking about, those kind of conversations, um, I would never have really, I would never really have a story. I wouldn't have gone through everything that I've gone through, but it's not something that I'm resentful for. It's, it's something because, uh, honestly, as messed up as this sounds, I'd probably do it all again just because I'm the man who I am today because of it. And all I want, and part of the reason why I guess I wrote the book, part of it, is to just kind of let people know what's going on. Because, uh, you know, it just, I, I don't think people believe or people want to discuss of what's being taught in schools, but also what's not being taught, which I think is even more important. Is And, and these are all things that you're bringing up like sexuality and other things. It just varies from what school you go to, what state you're in. And at the end of the day, you know, this sexual stuff that we talk about, it's not varied, you know, an STD is an, an STD in New York is an STD in Arizona. You know what I mean? Uh, sexual being gay in New York, it shouldn't be different than being gay in Arizona, you know? So, um, we need some sort of, uh, in my, and this is just my opinion, again, uh, just a better way across the board of addressing what sex is, sexuality, and, you know, all of the dangers and risks that, that there are real dangers and risks, but also what, what the actual dangers are and, and how you could go forward, again, with protection, contraception, things like that. And don't shame people about what what they want to do with their lives in terms of sexuality and, and sex. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so to what, what, what is your parents like, is your parents, uh, struggle with, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder also? Uh, you know what? Not, they've never been diagnosed. Um, I think that my, you know, my dad, you know, he says, oh, maybe, maybe I have a little bit of OCD again. I think, I think almost, you know, there's a lot of people who have OCD. It just doesn't get to the point where I was at, where they can't control it. You know, a lot of people have OCD where a common thing is, hang on, I got to go check the lock. Did I lock the door? Like maybe I sat and I locked the door. I know I locked the door. I remember locking the door. I'm sitting in the car. I started the car. I got to go to work. But let me just double check so I don't feel like nervous and anxious. And otherwise, if I don't, if I back out of the driveway and go to work, I'm going to be thinking, did I lock the door all day long, even though I remember I locked it? That's what OCD is. So I think a lot of people do have it. It's just something that it's controllable. It's a minor inconvenience. At the end of the day, you're not um, losing valuable time by going out and checking the door one last time. It's almost like a normal thing to do. Um, you know, someone would be like, well, I guess that's smart of you. So you don't, you know, to make sure you locked it. But, um, you know, I think maybe my dad does, but to be honest, it's not anything diagnosed or anything that's, um, preventing him from doing anything. Not that that's, 
um, a good thing because no one should really struggle with it. But uh, no, not really medically diagnosed. So I'm not going to speculate. So no, I don't think so. Can you uh, talk to us, Ace, about the difference uh, between obsessions and compulsions? Sure. So obsessions is the thought, right? Obsessions is like, for me, let's just, I'll use myself as an example. I was obsessed with STDs, with not getting an STD and what they were and and what the consequences were or what I thought they were. And that's all I would think about or not, not literally everything I would think about, but that was what um, made up. That was in my mind every day for a large majority of the day is not getting contaminated. Right. So that's an obsession. A compulsion is okay. I'm acting on that obsession. So it goes from I'm thinking about washing my hands consistently. I'm thinking about, oh, my God, I have to wash my hands and, oh, they weren't clean enough to um, I'm, I'm doing it. I washed my hands already. Right. I washed my hands for 20 seconds. But you know what? My hands, I don't think they were clean enough. Let me do it again. You know, let me do it again. And compulsions is, is acting on it. Compulsions is if I don't do this ritual, then I'm going to feel bad or I'm going to die or something like that. You really, So in my case, if I didn't wash my hands um, a certain amount of times or I didn't wash a body part a certain amount of times, then I would feel so anxious um, and I would feel bad, like a sense of dread. So I think an, an obsession is what you're actually obsessing about. So for me, STDs and stuff like that. Uh, a compulsion is actually following through on something rational or not to prevent the obsession, I guess, to kind of keep the obsession at bay. Um, so yeah, an obsession is the thought compulsions is acting on it. That's what I would say the difference is, you know, and how old are you now, Ace? Uh, I'm 23, 23. And, and so what do you do for work? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. OCD is one of those things where, uh, it's not so much like you said about getting rid of it because it is inconvenient. It's more about uh, finding out how to manage it. And, Absolutely. Um, and the, and if you're if you're struggling with OCD, uh, there are jobs that you know people with OCD are, are better suited for, like accounting, housekeeping, photography, mm-hmm. uh, the military, where <clears throat> you really have to pay attention to detail and cleanliness software programming, uh, editors, or a lot of editors and writers and proofreaders are, um, uh, you know, struggle with OCD, have travel agents, a life coach. So it's not about, like you said, getting rid of it. It's about finding the, 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 the pocket, the space, the area in which you can thrive and, and not just survive. So what, what, what do you, I know you wrote the book. Are you working on a second book or what are you doing now? Uh, no, I'm not working on a second book, although that's maybe something I'll do down the line when I'm actually more grown and more settled in uh, to my life. I'm kind of, you know, just I'm out of college uh, in 2018, so I'm kind of just working. I worked at this boating company, Sea uh, Streak, uh, which is like a commuter ferry that goes to New Jersey from uh, New York and vice versa. Unfortunately, this whole COVID-19 I actually got laid off. Um, because of that uh, virus. So, but luckily, um, I did just get hired um, 
at Amazon uh, to work uh, in their warehouse, which is, again, something I published my book through Amazon as well. So I'm kind of familiar with a lot of the business. But in terms of for someone with OCD, um, and, and one of the things that's so difficult with OCD is that it's different for everybody. Um, you know, it, OCD is unfortunately not a blanket, not a one size fit all jacket. It's, you know, I had my OCD and it was insanely specific to STDs, but I met someone in the hospital, a fellow patient of mine who was afraid of loud noises because she associated them with terrorist attacks. So you could imagine, um, you know, being outside, there's construction, there's loud booms, you know. Um, stuff like that. It, she was having trouble functioning in um, just society. Now, fortunately, she's doing well now. Um, from the many years ago that I was in the hospital, we've all kept in touch, uh, the friends that I've made there. Fortunately, she's doing well now. But uh, in terms of a, a job that someone could thrive in who is suffering with uh, this disorder, I would just say something that you personally want to do as the individual and something that doesn't obviously trigger you in any way or makes your anxieties jump up. Um, but in terms of career, I just feel like it's, it's so, it's such an, it's very individual. So there isn't a one size fits all. I I'm fine. I'm still trying to find my path, um, in a career. You know, I don't want to be working in a, in a warehouse, um, forever, but, um, I would say that if someone has OCD and it's preventing them from doing types of work, um, you know, I would I, I would definitely, and I'm sure you talk about this a lot, is definitely look into counseling, um, therapy, and that kind of stuff. Because if you want to do something and you can't do it because of your OCD, then your OCD is controlling your life, and you, something needs to change. Um, and you know, I'm lucky, you know, it's definitely not easy. It's a battle. I didn't just go into the hospital and got better, you know, like that. It took me two months, which is actually a pretty short time, but you know, I, I was dedicated for it and I, I worked at it and there were struggles and there were ups and downs. So I would say again, someone with OCD, you mentioned a lot of things that people with OCD can thrive in, especially analytical type things. And people with OCD typically have a certain kind of mindset. Um, but honestly, I would suggest to anyone, do what you love and do what makes you happy and do what you think is right. Well, you know, what, what's fascinating is, you know, writing shows up as, as a great uh, career pathway for uh, people struggling with OCD. But mm. I could also imagine like you, you're writing and rewriting and obsessing over the same word. What was your structure like? Like, what was your routine for writing? Did you write whenever you felt like it? Did you have to write first thing in the morning? How did you structure your schedule sure. around completing the book? So... I first came up with the idea to write this book uh, a long time ago. When I when I went into college, when I was applying to get into college, I wrote the the question was name an experience in your life that changed you for like changed who you were. That was the question. I'm like, wow, what a perfect question. I have this whole story. Again, my uh, OCD um, kind of ended at the end of my freshman year of high school, so I kind of was living with living in a post, um, 
intense OCD world. And I was kind of just living with a minor case of it and kind of just managing it. So I wrote this like six or seven page essay and they were like, this is too long. So I was like, wow, that was already the short version of my story. One day I got to write a book. So I eventually condensed it and took like a lot of stuff out. It was a great little essay that I wrote, but I remember ever since that point, I got, I got to write a book because there's so much, you know, that was already the short version. It was seven pages. So, um, but then in terms of all those years later, I started writing it, um, my senior year of college, um, which was 2017, 2018 that year. And you know what? I just started writing. I was someone who wanted to write when I felt like it. Um, you know, I didn't always set a time, but it was just when I was feeling it. There was times where I took long breaks. I started writing the book um, in early 2017. I didn't finish until 2018. Um, so I know that's only a year, but it was just something of, I, I you know, I don't even know. It was just something, it was just, uh, it was something where if I felt like doing it, I would do it. I know a lot of people do have that structure and that's really great. But for me, I just had to be inspired um, to 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 get on it, and and I was, um, I definitely was. But it definitely didn't happen all in one go. So that is something for sure. But yes. Well, you know, I'm I'm looking at the exposure therapy, and and a lot of people uh, are like, uh, I don't want to eat off of a a toilet. Uh, Absolutely. You know, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just bear in mind that there are so many different types of exposure therapy uh one is called graded exposure versus flooding so graded mm. exposure is a, a slow exposure to whatever it is uh that uh is the feared stimuli uh so mm. like if you're afraid of spiders maybe i don't you know expose you to spiders maybe i expose you to like plastic spiders at first mm. and then yeah. like paper spiders and then, like, maybe um, a spider leg or, mm. you know, things like that. And so, like, I'm slowly – and then, like, may, then it's a real spider, but I just don't put it on you. Like, you get to just see Absolutely. it from a distance. And then mm. every day you get a little closer to the spider. Uh, so that's graded yeah. exposure. And then flooding is like, here's a spider. Like, like you're, you're, yeah. you're playing with it. It's crawling on you. And so, you know, you're, you're flooded. Um, and then there's, uh, the other type of exposure therapy. There's so many types. I'm just going to go over one more is, sure. uh, in vivo exposure versus imaginal. So in vivo mm. is like real world exposure to, uh, the feared stimuli. So like, it would be like a real spider versus mm -hmm. imaginal would be like you imagining and thinking about it and the, thinking about the spider crawling on top of you and things like that. And, uh, and, you know, the type of exposure therapy that's used just depends on what it is. Like, if you are a military person, they, of course, aren't going to send you back in a war to help mm -hmm. you deal with your PTSD. But they would probably have you imagine, uh, you know, what had taken place and how you'd respond and the sights and sounds and smells that, that occurred with it. So uh, definitely check it out because it, it really is one of those things that, uh, does work. You know, the, the more we are exposed to something, uh, the more numb we become to it, the, the less uh, stimulated or triggered 
or activated by it, uh, we become. Um, and, and so, you know, to look into it, talk to your therapist if you're talking to a therapist. But, uh, you know, there's so many different ways that it can be applied. So if, if you felt like you've tried everything else and you haven't tried exposure therapy, definitely uh, look into it. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we all have to face our fears on, on one level or the other. Absolutely. You know, and, and you know, one thing I want to uh, mention, I definitely, the toilet thing was one of my last exposures. I definitely built up to that. Um, there certainly could be negative effects to jumping into, okay, I'm afraid of spiders. Now I'm going to go get one as a pet, you know, or I'm going to go see one and have it crawl on me. That could actually set you back. So definitely uh, I would stress again, and I'm sure you know, if you're under the care or if you're thinking about speaking with uh, a counselor, they would definitely be the ones to guide you to the pace. Um, but certainly uh, pacing is definitely everything. I, I will just say the first exposure was me looking at a picture of herpes and then, uh, you know, and then my anxiety would go up just from that. And then after um, I was able to manage that after a couple of weeks, um, or a couple of days. I uh, don't remember how long it took me from doing that exposure, but I, it led from that to all the way the end step was eating goldfish or Chex Mix or whatever off the toilet seat. So definitely don't rush to that. You know what I mean? Um, definitely pace yourself and be smart and, and definitely do it under the guidance of, of a professional. That is definitely for sure. So um, in this in this quarantine, do you do sure. you feel validated? Are you like, see, I told you, it's germs out there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, you know, I I'm very fortunate in the sense that, and uh, people said this at the hospital too. Um, no one actually gets rid of OCD. You know, like I, you leave the hospital. They say this all the time. You leave the hospital seventy five percent better. The rest is up to you. The rest is use the knowledge, use the, you know, use the time that you've gathered to learn and expose yourself to anxieties and, and the things you learned how to manage it and to use it in the real world. Luckily, I didn't relapse and luckily I've been fine uh, since I was released in 2011. But um, others, you know, they might not have done so well in terms of this coronavirus you know, again, it, it's one of those things. OCD was so specific. I was not afraid of anything else. It was so weird. People go, well, Ace, weren't you kind of like a neat freak? And yeah, I was. But I was thinking about STDs. My main fear was getting this STD and then not being able to, you know, I was going to die from it or I was not going to be able to meet someone because they would be like, oh, he had an STD or something like that. And that would affect my life. So in terms of the coronavirus, uh, I, it's definitely a shame and it's definitely affected me and it's affected a lot of my friends and, and family and things like that. And I feel so bad for all the people who are sick with it. But in terms of uh, me worrying about it, you know, not really. Um, and I, I, it's not because I'm not worried. What I mean by not worried is my OCD, you know, me being, oh, yeah, well, the germs and, and people should be worried about that kind of stuff. It's kind of like my my parents and friends say this all the time. The hospital fixed you too good. You know, I'm almost on the other end of the spectrum where I'm not saying, of course, you know, everyone needs to be safe. I wear a face mask. Um, you know, I 
do the proper precautions. But in terms of me, you know, losing sleep over the virus, maybe I'm just that much of a, maybe I'm just that much on the other side of the spectrum. I have been fine. Um, thank God, you know, in terms of my effects, because people do reach out and they go, Ace, how, how are you doing with this? You know, knowing that you had this contamination thing and OCD and you were very afraid and Fortunately, I'm doing well, and I really hope that everyone else um, starts to do well as well because uh, a lot of people have lost their jobs or a lot of people have loved ones or a lot of people I know people who have it. So um, I know someone who just got out of the hospital um, from it. So I, I am just hoping that you know everyone stays safe and follows the precautions and doesn't take this lightly, and I hope that we all uh, get back on our feet soon. Um, so I guess that that's my thoughts on the, on the virus and everything like that with that. Yeah. I mean, especially with you going into, you know, going into a workplace at Amazon, uh, I'm sure mm-hmm. that you're going to, you know, do you have masks or are they going to provide you with a mask? Or you know what? Going? I haven't, I haven't actually started yet. I'm actually supposed to start today, <laughs> later. Um, and yeah, they, they have been in contact with me about, um, you know, they are going to provide masks. You could also bring your own, which I have. I actually, I actually got my own. I'm a big uh, baseball fan. So um, I actually have like this New York Mets face mask that I bought. I thought it was cool. And then it's like, yeah, you know, I go around, I go, people look at me because I got this, this like little custom face mask. I'm like, you know what? Just because it's the end of the world doesn't mean you can't be a little styling. You know what I mean? Just, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to go with my face mask later. Um, they take temperature, they take your temperature before you go into the building. So if you have a high enough temperature, you're not going to be able to work. Um, they're cleaning and sanitizing the building more. This is stuff they've told me. I haven't been there yet, but I'm expected to, you know, wear a face mask for the entire shift. And I'm expected to consent to my temperature being taken whenever I leave or enter the building. So, um, hopefully that, that does bring, a safe work environment, but it's not something I'm particularly worried about. I think it's just because personally, um, you know, I don't really, it, it sucks to get the coronavirus, but it's one of those things where you have to know exactly what it is. Um, and fortunately I don't really suffer from a lot of respiratory things. So, um, I, it wouldn't be something where it's fatal to me, but I understand that it would be a big risk if I were to get it to somebody who does struggle with respiratory issues. And um, so I understand the seriousness of it. But in terms of my safety, I, I, I think I'm going to be okay. Um, even going back to work, I'm very excited to go back to work because to be honest with you, I've been losing my mind uh, since I haven't had a job. The days have kind of blended. Um, so I'm happy to be getting out of the house, you know, um, because I have been staying in the house more. Everything is closed or closed for they have limited hours so uh being responsible but at the same time i you know doing the best i can you know to stay safe and to um live my life you know so yeah absolutely uh now with cognitive behavioral therapy sure. uh the, besides the exposure therapy what were some of the cognitions that you had and how did they challenge those cognitions or get you to reframe those Sure. So again, it's so weird. And and that's the thing with, with OCD. I, I know I keep mentioning it, but it really is one of those things that's different for everyone. So 
you know, going into the hospital in terms besides the exposures, you know, the therapy sessions that I had, they were really sex ed. It was like really proper sex ed because the end, at the end of the day, I was in there in the first place because these rituals, I felt like they were a response to what what sex, what these sexual diseases are. I didn't really have a, a proper understanding of the difference between, let's just say, herpes one and herpes two, you know, which is one is um, near your mouth and one is on your genitals. So I thought if you had one, you had the other. And it was just one of those things that I was so confused about. It was kind of like just de-educating all of the lies of what these diseases are and their effects. And, you know, I learned that there's there's treatments for a lot of these diseases. Or like, for instance, you know, if you were to get something like gonorrhea, there are treatments for it. You're not going to have it forever. Um, you know, there's medicine. You know, you're not just, oh, you're going to die or you're stuck forever. Or even if you have a disease forever, you know, it's manageable, something like that. So, Really, in terms of what my cognitive sessions were, it was proper sexual education of what these diseases are and how they affect you and what the treatments are and what the risks are. Because I didn't get that, going back to our first conversation, I didn't get that in sex ed. And that's what I kind of fear um, with... With people that were also, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully there aren't any other people like me. Maybe I just took the way they were teaching it the wrong way. And I, you know, had this extreme case of OCD because of it. Maybe maybe other people, um, you know, are, are affected or struggling. Maybe other people were scared. Maybe other people were confused. Or maybe some other people had questions during that lecture. So... Really, uh, it's so strange because, and I mentioned this in the book, at times it didn't even feel like regular, you know, this intense therapy. At times it just felt like, oh, this is kind of like a sex ed class, you know? Um, I would have questions. I would ask questions to my therapist. I would talk to them about why I felt to do what I did. And I, and they would kind of just really educate me because I was so misinformed about what these diseases actually were. I guess I thought that if you were to get an STD, that was it, you know, and like you would pass it on to your kids or, you know, you pass it on to someone else. I didn't really, I didn't really fully understand what it was. And I think I was making, of course, it, no one wants to get an STD. And of course, it's not good to have one. Um, you definitely should get it treated and something like that. But I really thought it was worse than what it actually was. And, um, you know, I just, it was kind of, again, like, like education. It was like sex ed. It was like a proper sex ed. And along with me actually learning, right? Because I think knowledge is power. Once you learn about this kind of stuff and you're triggering your anxiety and things like that, you, you kind of master it. So I guess that was what the cognitive parts were. Like, you know, just basically learning the basics of what I should have learned back in school, but unfortunately what I didn't learn. So, you, you yeah. know, you bring up such a powerful point in that proper education is, is so vital in alleviating our anxiety. There, there are things that people are worried about from the COVID to uh, finances, to work, to the future. And, you know, I, I tell people one of the things that keeps me calm is that I educated myself, not just on, 
the coronavirus, but just on past pandemics and mm-hmm. how did we respond and how long did they last and um, and how did people get through it and survive and and when you look at his this is a time to look at history and mm-hmm. it, because what it does is it teaches you that we are uh, robust and we are and we do come back stronger and we we are anti-fragile and and that things like this pandemic uh yes we're going to lose a lot of people it's unfortunate a lot of people are going to get sick and there's going to and and people are going to lose homes but uh after after years down the road the, the country and the world will be better for this because there'll be better systems in place and better health care and it is going to it's going to um, encourage us to look at how are we living our lives? You know, so many people were just running around working on a treadmill and, and, and not really connecting with family and friends. And then something like this where now you, now you have to be at home and you have to have that conversation with your kids and with your spouse. Or if you're by yourself, to, to sit and reflect and, and really figure out who you are and what your values are. This is something that that really, you know, it's one of those make, defining moments. I don't want to say make or break, but it's a defining moment in in the lives of of our of the world and and in people. And uh, and so I, I'm I'm hopeful about how we progress and move forward from here. But like you said, it starts with education and not just news. You have to read books. You have to talk to people. Because mm-hmm. uh, the news is trying to scare you, they're trying to provoke anxiety. Absolutely, yep. And uh, they have no interest in you being calm and peaceful about this. They need you riled up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, you know what you said is right. And hopefully, we we will um, learn lessons from this and improve on, especially the healthcare aspect, because. You know, one of the one of the reasons why I wrote the book again. You know, I have many reasons why I wrote it, but also it's one of those things where I'm trying to not just OCD. I want to talk about the stigmas of, of mental health, and um, you know, I I saw it. You know, like in movies, TV shows, even when you're talking with friends. You know, some person, you know, they're afraid to say, "Well, I'm seeing someone, like a counselor. I'm seeing this, or maybe I need to talk to someone," because then. You know, at least this is how the media kind of uh, portrays it. There's something wrong with you. There's a flaw, you know, like you're not normal. And, you know, what I have to say is I I don't think normal actually exists. And, you know, if you're quote unquote normal, then there's something wrong with you. Everyone has something that they deal with, you know. And I I didn't write the the, the book for, you know, like fortunes or fame or whatever. You know, what I do is um, I actually print out the books a lot and, um, you know, like buy author copies. And I actually give them away, like on the streets in New York City and um, other places. And I don't just, you know, sit there and give them away. You know, I I have a sign and it says, um, you know, giving away a free book, just just talk to me. So we just have a little conversation about mental health and, um, you know, about maybe what it is. Or, or what you think it is. And we just have an honest conversation about mental health and the stories of, of our system and things like that. 
and whatever you think, you know, then you could just take the book and, and walk away. And But that's the greatest part for me. That's the greatest reward is um, shaking hands, you know. Like, yeah, I could sell a book on Amazon. And believe me, that, that makes me very happy when I do because someone actually would uh, give their hard-earned money to me for, you know, for my hard work, I guess, for writing it. And I, I feel grateful for that. But the greatest thing is when I get when I meet people, when I shake hands, when I make memories, when I make an impression on someone, when we talk about mental health together, because that's how you actually change the system and change the world. You get people educated. You know, you got to start on the ground like it's a grassroots kind of thing. And, you know, education not just with OCD, but with mental health and all things is how we could improve as a society and um, as humans. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the important thing, I, I would say. It's just that that's just one of the great things when I when I meet people, when I have conversations and you wouldn't even believe how many people when I talk to them, they say, you know what? I had something with this or my best friend or my kid or my dad or my mom had something similar to this or they had another disorder or they were misunderstood because they were seeing a counselor or a therapist. So um, it's it's touching to me, but it's also something that uh, it's very real that people go, you know what, I had I struggle with something like this, too. I struggle with anxiety. I think we need to People hide this stuff. Like people portray like that they're normal and happy and that everything is great. And of course you could be happy and things are going great in your life. But I think we have to kind of be real with each other that, you know, we as humans, it's you know, there's a lot of we have a lot of flaws and we we shouldn't be ashamed of them. We shouldn't be hiding these flaws. We should be trying to trying to trying to manage them, trying to live better and happier and healthier lives. And that kind of goes back to our first conversation about shame, you know, people not wanting to talk about sex. People could be <clears throat> embarrassed about their sexuality or about, you know, maybe maybe they had an STD and, or maybe they think they do, but they don't want to get tested because if someone finds out that they were at the clinic, then word could get around that they have the clap or something wrong with them. So we need to get out of this fear aspect, this judging aspect that, that we as humans have and and think about health and think about what's better for us and what's right. And we can live better lives. So, you know, I don't really know where I was going with this, but I guess that that's what was on my mind when you mentioned all that. So, man, yeah. I appreciate you sharing all that. Are, are there other takeaways from from, you know, from the cognitive behavioral therapy or any types of therapy? that sure. you feel like other people should incorporate to help manage their anxiety or OCD or get over it? Well, I would definitely say this, uh, and I know I keep saying this, but another reason why I wrote the book is because, and I mentioned in the book, look, not everyone was so receptive to the, ther to the therapy, or should I say, not everyone was so willing to listen. You know, I was, I decided a long time ago, Okay, when I agreed to go to this hospital and my dad talked to me about it, I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm going to try because I know that this is this stuff what I'm doing isn't actually healthy for me, but I, I want to get over it. I just need help. I need help to get over it. And I was willing to listen to the doctors and I was willing to take the medicine. You know, I think a lot of people have this, even people who are going through therapy have this resistance. Well, I don't need this or I'm not going to listen. Right. I'm going to fight the doctors every bit of the way. 
And unfortunately, you know, that that kind of provokes or I guess prolongs their suffering because really these people, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a therapist, whether it's someone, they really want to help you. And there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is another way, you know, to live life. And it's hard. It's definitely not hard. I mean, it's definitely not easy. I've been in your shoes. But I would say the number one thing that I that I say, and I say this in the book, is please listen to, you know, your therapist. Because you could go and, and sit in a session, but if you're not, you know, listening, if you're not going to implement the steps, if you're not going to try the exposures, if you're not going to try the, you know, try and stop this, it, you have to want it hard enough. And I know it's super hard because they're going through um, a mental obstacle in their mind that's that's led them to this point, but you have to fight it and you have to listen to, again, the licensed and qualified professionals in order to really advance. And I was fortunate enough to be in the mindset where I was sick and fed up with this OCD. I wanted to listen. And I listened. I took their advice. I had questions. I had apprehensions. But at the end of the day, I decided, you know what? My OCD is telling me these guys are wrong. This is the knowledge I have kind of had for my three years. And I I just decided to say, you know what? I am bigger than that OCD. I'm going to listen to this doctor. He knows what he's talking about. He He's trying to help me. I don't want to thwart that in any way. Because there were people who didn't. They, they pretended they didn't take their medicine. They pretended to, they tried to pretend to take their medicine or things like that when I was in the hospital. So there was a form of resistance and hey, that's them and they had that and they had that for their own reasons. But I would say the number one advice I have for anyone who's going to go through therapy is, is really listen to them. They're, they're there to help you and it's not going to be easy. It's definitely not going to be a smooth sailing ride all the way up and you're going to be better. There's going to be work. You got to put in time and the effort, but listen to them because they, they are really, they know what's best. They, they, they will, they will try and help you. So that's my definite word of advice. Do you journal at all? Um, you know what I used to, when I got out, um, of the hospital, that was one of the things to, that I would do every day while I was in there was kind of write what I was feeling. And I do like to write. Uh, obviously, I wrote a book, but I, I like to write poetry. Um, it's not something that I share online or anything. It's just something I like to do. Um, if you have, you know, there are, there are ways to cope with it. Writing is certainly, like you mentioned before, people with OCD specifically, they're one of the things they, they find themselves doing is writing. And I would, no, I personally don't, but I see the, the value in um, writing. So if that helps you logging your feelings, logging your exposures or logging something like that, you know, you should definitely do it. Um, or if it's another creative means, I highly suggest it. But me personally, I'm not journaling at the moment. No. Um, and then are you reading anything right now? Uh, yeah. You know what? I'm reading. Um, <laughs> I'm actually reading a lot of things. You know, I started reading this year. One of the things when I published my book um, last year, um, I was like, you know what? I got to start reading because not only am I an author now, but it's something that when I was in school, you were kind of forced to read, you know, and I, I hated that. I, I hated being forced to read something that I didn't like or didn't want to read or or something like that. Um, currently, currently, I'm reading a, um, a baseball book right now. Um, 
it's called Game Seven, nineteen eighty six. Uh, it's by Ron Darling. I kind of don't just stick to one subject. I kind of alternate between history and sports. So that's what I'm reading right now. Um, and I'm also reading another book. I'm actually reading two books at once. The other book I'm reading is Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too by George Lakey. Um, so those are the two books that I'm reading right now, and uh, I'm enjoying it. I certainly suggest reading to people, maybe, you know, to people who haven't read in a while or just people who currently read. You know, I think it's a great thing to do, especially we have a lot of time uh, being quarantined. So I really suggest uh, giving a lot of books to read. Um, yeah, reading is great. And then, uh, last question and I ask this of all the guests that I have on the podcast, uh, cause I always imagine there's someone listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life mm-hmm. before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? I would say to them that someone loves you. Um, and if you don't even know who that someone is, maybe you say, no, you, no, there isn't. Uh, I love you, and uh, I want to be your friend. There are people who would miss you if you were to take your own life, and I really wouldn't want you to. But you know, there would be people who, who would cry for you, who would mourn for you for the rest of their lives. So please don't leave them behind. Um, I, it's obviously very, it's a very hard world. It's a very tough world. But there are resources for you to get help. And there are people that love you and want to be in your life and want to be your friend. And they will mourn you when you're gone. And really, it would be a shame for you to be gone. They want you to be there. I want you to be there. So that that's what I would say. I'd want you to be there for the rest of my life. So don't don't go. That's what I would say. Hey, Sorenstein, that was amazing. Get his book, Embarrassed to Ask, My Life with Com- Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and the Cognitive Based Therapy that helped. Where can they get it? Name all the places. Plug all sure. the things. Well, actually, the, the main place you get it is uh, on Amazon. I published through them. Um, so if you just search my name, because uh, that's kind of a, I know it's a long title. So if you just search my name, A-C-E and space O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, you could uh, you'll definitely see it there. Or you could go again. You could find links on my social media. I have um. I have an Instagram, which is at Ace Orenstein. Again, same spelling, one word. Um, And again, I have Instagram and Twitter. You could find it there. You could find me there um, if you want to talk, you know, because I've had people who read it or people who just don't read it and they want to talk. And I'm always here to talk um, about mental health or about just anything to keep you going and, uh, and, and to point out resources that you could take. Cause that's the most important part. You know, I'm not a licensed therapist. I've just benefited so much from their kind of methods. So if you want to reach out to me, you could reach out to me there, or you could email me aceorenstein at gmail.com, A-C-E-O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N at gmail. So um, yeah, that's where you could get it. Find it on Amazon. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Leo. Thank you, Ace. Thank you, everyone who listened in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you asking for help. Uh, even if you're embarrassed, it's okay. That mm-hmm. It's a, it's Absolutely. an emotion like all the other emotions. Allow Sit in that, feel that. And still pick up the phone and call someone, reach out, get help, check yourself into a clinic, whatever you have to do, your, your, whatever you're feeling, whatever your pain is, 
you're 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 feeling like a burden or you're feeling like you don't belong it's not a permanent state of emotion of feeling and you can get help uh if you've been to therapy you've been to you've been to coaching uh none of that's whatever group therapy um go to thrivewithleo.com and then you get one-on-one coaching with yours truly uh thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with uh me leo flowers and uh we can we can we can reestablish hope and 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 let's get to tomorrow together talk to you later ace i appreciate you thank you all thank for you very in. much leo and thank we you. will talk to you soon <laughs>